A kiss is just a kiss. A smile is just a smile. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. That kind of thing. What was I supposed to do? Uh, yellow. Um, this is this is 20 years old now. This song, maybe older than some of you. Uh, watching or listening or whatever. Um, look at the stars. Look how they shine for you. and back with some more internal medicine essentials questions for you homebound students who are on lockdown unfortunately uh, we miss all of you here at the medical center for sure my team was just telling me how much they miss their students uh, they're very lonely without our third year students and our fourth year some of our fourth year students Anyway, today I'm going to do a few questions from infectious diseases section of the Internal Medicine Essentials. And by the way, that uh, intro music there, uh, I encourage you to check that out on YouTube. There's this uh, series of concerts going on now called uh, Together at Home, or it might be At Home Together. I think it's Together at Home, and that was, of course, Chris Martin from Coldplay does a really great 30-minute um, session and I don't know where he is he seems to be in a living room or a sound session there's really no intro to it and people are uh, sending messages to him I guess he did it on Instagram actually anyway I have some other uh, surprises in between a few of these questions if I have time the other thing to know is I am on call today with my team so I may have to run off to see some admissions so I don't know whether I'll finish this today March 21st 2020 or whether it'll come out tomorrow and maybe if you're listening to this a year or two from now uh, or even three or four years from now which are as old as some of our podcasts are you'll be sitting around thinking what was the big deal with that COVID-19 thing gosh it was such a flash in the pan or you might remember it as a significant event in the history of humanity I don't know which it will be but We'll have to just see, and this will be the record of it, at least from the educator side. So I'm going to start, I'm going to jump around a little bit here with these items because um, a few of the questions I looked through, I didn't, I sort of wouldn't say threw them out. I just didn't think they'd be as high yield given the time factor here today and the fact that we're just going to try and book through five questions. Uh, let's see how it goes. So this is item 11 in the infectious disease section of in internal medicine essentials for students. A 26-year-old man is evaluated because of a three-day history of fever, myalgia, dry cough, and malaise. 
He has no known drug allergies. The remainder of the medical history is non-contributory. On physical examination, temperature is 38.3 degrees centigrade or 100.9 degrees Fahrenheit. Blood pressure 125 over 75 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 95 per minute and respiratory rate is 16 per minute. Oxygen saturation is 100% on ambient air. Crackles are heard in the left lung base. Chest radiograph shows left lower lobe airspace disease. So this is a management question. Which of the following oral agents is the most appropriate treatment? This is not a what would you do next kind of question. This is a management question regarding antibiotics. So A, amoxicillin. B, azithromycin, C, cefuroxime, or D, ciprofloxacin. And again, those choices are amoxicillin, azithromycin, cefuroxime, or ciprofloxacin. Um, and so uh, the answer here actually is B, uh, which would be azithromycin. Uh, that's what he should be treated with. His clinical presentation and radiographic findings are consistent with community-acquired uh, pneumonia, um, and uh, or otherwise known as CAP. In outpatients, risk factors for drug-resistant streptococcus pneumoniae infection influence the selection of empiric therapy. So this is, answer to this really kind of does depend on where you're practicing on the planet or in the United States. But these risk factors for, uh, for drug-resistant strep pneumo include age older than 65, recent, i.e. within the last three months, beta-lactam therapy, medical comorbidities, immunocompromising conditions, and immunosuppressive therapy, alcoholism, and exposure to a child in daycare, interestingly enough. This patient is young, healthy man with no risk factors for drug-resistant strep pneumo infection. Therefore, treatment with a macrolide agent such as azithromycin will provide adequate coverage for likely pathogens, including drug-susceptible strep pneumoniae, haemophilus influenza, mycoplasma species, and chlamydia species. And so the, one of the key things to be aware of here is as you're choosing an antibiotic in a question like this, even if you don't exactly know the answer is, you know, what are the possibilities in, in a young patient like this, particularly has a dry cough, not a productive cough, and you'd certainly be considering atypical type or so-called atypical type pathogens. Um, so azithromycin would be the best choice that would nail uh, streptococcus pneumoniae, H. flu, as well as these other so-called atypicals like mycoplasma and chlamydia. Amoxicillin would not provide coverage for atypical pathogens such as the mycoplasma or chlamydia and would not cover all H. flu strains because an increasing number of strains produce beta-lactamase. Although few studies have examined the microbiology of CAP in outpatients, a key thing to know, uh, this is not the most evidence-based thing in the world, mycoplasma and chlamydia are more likely to cause pneumonia in ambulatory patients. High-dose amoxicillin combined with a macrolide is an alternative for patients with risk factors for drug-resistant strep pneumonia infection. In other words, if they had one of those things I listed above as being risk factors, and you are also worried about atypical things, you could give them a macrolide plus high-dose amoxicillin. Cefiroxime provides coverage for drug-susceptible strep pneumonia and H. flu, but not 
for atypical pathogens. A respiratory fluoroquinolone such as moxifloxacin or levofloxacin provides appropriate coverage for the likely pathogens associated with CAP, but is unnecessarily broad for this indication. So yeah, you could uh, use, you wouldn't use Cipro because it doesn't have great uh, strep coverage, which is what they listed there. If they had listed Moxi or Levofloxacin, um, that might have been a reasonable answer, except for it is a very broad antibiotic. It's also one of the most commonly associated antibiotics with Clostridium difficile colitis. So you really, um, you kind of want, and actually they're not calling that, uh, they're not calling that Clostridium difficile anymore, uh, I just read. Uh, I uh, have to look that up too. <laughs> I stumbled across this the other day, you guys probably know. There's a new name for C. diff. That's just to keep us on our toes so that we have more things to learn instead of less. Um, so ciprofloxacin has very poor activity against strep pneumo and should not be used as empiric therapy for CAP. I underline should not be used for empiric therapy for CAP. All right, good. So hopefully you don't have any questions about that one. performer by the name of Raphael Amente and he is from Bologna, Italy and I thought that appropriate to play at this time since the Italians are having their share of challenges with the COVID-19 virus. Uh, apparently 600 people died yesterday in the country of Italy so our thoughts go out to them and uh, if you want to listen to more music by Raphael Amenta. Uh, it is available on SoundCloud, and there's also some music you can purchase on iTunes. He has a, several albums, and he's also featured on several other uh, performers' albums. So really nice music there. All right, this is item 14 in Infectious Disease Medicine in I Am Essentials. A 35-year-old man is evaluated in the office for pre-employment physical exam. He emigrated to the United States from Vietnam last year and has been employed by the public school system. He is asymptomatic and takes no medications. He does not drink alcohol, smoke cigarettes, or use illicit drugs. At 12 years of age, he received the Bacillus Camet Guérin vaccine. On physical exam, vital signs are normal. Want me to say that again? Bacillus Camet Guérin um, vaccine. <laughs> On physical exam, vital signs are normal. I can't speak French to, to save my life. Uh, the remainder of the physical exam is normal. Which of the following is indicated to screen for tuberculosis? A. Chest radiograph. B. Interferon gamma release assay. C. Sputum stain and culture. D, tuberculin skin test, or E, no additional testing. Again, choices are A, chest radiograph, B, interferon gamma release assay, C, sputum stain and culture, D, tuberculin skin test, or E, no additional testing. So uh, hopefully you answered um, 
B, which is uh, a, the uh, interferon gamma release assay. Um, so that would be the n most appropriate next step for this patient in uh, in an era, uh, in <laughs> in a patient who's received the uh, Bacillus Kamet-Gion uh, vaccine. Um, he recently emigrated from an area with high rates of tuberculosis, so screening for TB is recommended. The CDC. Uh, endorses the use of IGRAs, that's the interferon gamma release assay for short, in all clinical settings in which the tuberculin skin test is recommended. So you can use the IGRA in place of the tuberculin skin test. Um, two types of IGRAs are increasingly being used. Both indicate sensitization to mycobacterium TB by measuring the release of interferon gamma in the blood by T cells as a response to MTB associated antigens. EGRAs are generally believed to be as sensitive as the uh, tuberculin skin test, but more specific in diagnosing tuberculosis. As with the skin test, a more vigorous EGRA response is needed for a low risk person to be considered infected. Similar to the risk for latent TB infection, EGRAs are preferred to the TST, or tuberculin skin test, in those who have received Bacillus Kamet-Gayen vaccine, either as a treatment for cancer, because remember they use it to treat bladder cancer sometimes, or as a vaccine. So EGRAs are also preferred when testing persons who often do not return for follow-up reading of the tuberculin skin test. So these would be injection drug users or homeless persons, generally just otherwise not going to show for follow-up. Because if you give them a skin test and they don't come back to have it read, then you're out of luck and you don't know. Generally, EGRAs are done in place of the tuberculin skin test and not in addition to this test. EGRA testing is significantly more expensive than the tuberculin skin test and may not be readily available in some areas. I think most of us probably have these around the country now, though. These factors should be considered when deciding which testing strategy to pursue. Neither the tuberculin skin test nor EGRAs uh, can distinguish between latent and active infection. Therefore, any person who has a positive test result, either skin test or the EGRA, should be carefully evaluated for the possibility of active infection with a chest radiograph. Sputum staining and culture are done if changes are seen on the chest radiograph that are consistent with pulmonary tuberculosis or when the patient's presentation suggests the presence of active tuberculosis. So we're not ever doing uh, sputum cultures in gram stain if you don't have uh, some indication that there's uh, pulmonary tuberculosis, key thing to know. So the key point in this question is that interferon gamma release assay is preferred to the tuberculin skin test in those who have received Bacillus Kamet-Gayen vaccine, either, apologies to anyone who speaks French out there, either as treatment for cancer or as a vaccine. Interferon gamma releasing assay is also preferred when testing person persons who often do not return for follow-up reading of the tuberculin skin test. You're also probably kind of wondering, if you have somebody who doesn't return for follow-up, what do you do with a positive EGRA? And uh, I leave that for you to figure out. But, you know, their rationale is uh, certainly reasonable here. Okay, uh, the next question we are going to do is item number 15. Ooh, what was that? <laughs> that woke you right up, eh?
so item 15, a 70-year-old man is evaluated for placement in an extended care facility. Other than dementia, the patient has no medical problems, including fever, cough, or recent weight loss. He is a retired army officer who served in logistics and supply. He has no history of previous tuberculosis infection or exposure to persons with TB. He does not smoke cigarettes, drink alcohol, or use illicit drugs. His only medication is donepazil. An examination. Vital signs are normal. His score on the mini metal stat uh, status exam nation is 23. A TB skin test is applied and shows 8 millimeter of induration 48 hours after placement. Which of the following is the most appropriate management? A. Chest radiograph. B. Isolation. C. Treatment with isoniazid for 9 months. Or D. No further evaluation or therapy. Again, choices are A. Chest radiograph. B. Isolation. C. Treatment with isoniazid for 9 months. Or D. No further evaluation or therapy. And hopefully you guys got this one right. I think this is a really good question likely to show up on a lot of board exam type things, a shelf, step two, etc. So it's a test, it's really a test question about interpreting results of the TB skin test. So the answer is D, no further evaluation or therapy is needed. Uh, the MANTU tuberculin skin test involves injecting purified protein derivative intradermally usually into the volar aspect of the forearm, of course, and assessing the skin response. Induration, not erythema, is measured 48 to 72 hours later. A positive response indicates a delayed type hypersensitivity response. To increase the specificity of the test, criteria for positivity are based on the patient's risk factors for infection with mycobacterium tuberculosis. A tuberculin skin test response of 5 millimeters or greater is considered positive. Now listen carefully to this part if you don't know this. Uh, it's considered positive for HIV-positive persons, recent contacts of persons with active tuberculosis, those with fibrotic changes on chest radiograph that are consistent with previous TB infection, and patients with organ transplants and other immunosuppressive conditions, and these other immunosuppressive conditions are considered receiving the equivalent of 15 or more milligrams per day of prednisone for more than four weeks. Again, that's more than 15, greater than or equal to 15 milligrams per day of prednisone for more than four weeks. A tuberculin skin test response of 10 millimeters or greater is considered positive for drug users, residents, or employees of high-risk congregate settings including prisons and jails, nursing homes, and other long-term care facilities for the elderly, such as hospitals and other health care facilities, residential facilities for patient with, patients with AIDS and homeless shelters, uh, mycobacteriology laboratory personnel, persons with clinical conditions that put them at high risk for active disease, and children who are younger than four years of age or exposed to adults in high-risk categories. That's a lot to remember. Uh, but the most important one probably to know is uh, the criteria for if it's five, if it's only five millimeters, uh, between five and ten, knowing about HIV and immunosuppressed type patients. A response of 15 millimeters or greater is considered positive for all other persons. 
A chest radiograph is indicated for patients with symptoms that are compatible with tuberculosis or persons with a positive screening test for TB, such as a positive skin test or interferon gamma release assay, as per the last question I went over. Treatment with isoniazid for nine months would be appropriate for a person diagnosed with latent tuberculosis. Airborne precautions are recommended for patients infected with microorganisms such as rubella virus and MTB, which are transmitted by airborne droplet nuclei smaller than 5 micrometers. This patient has no indication for chest radiography, isoniazid treatment, or to be placed in isolation. Next question is, I'm going to do item 17 in this section, uh, and this is a 35-year-old man who's evaluated in the emergency department because of a one-month history of chronic cough that produces blood-tinged sputum. He has no significant medical history. He works as a merchant marine and travels frequently to Russia, India, and Southeast Asia. On physical examination, the patient appears thin and ill. Temperature is 38.8 degrees centigrade. Blood pressure is 125 over 75 millimeters of mercury. Pulse rate is 95 per minute. Respiratory rate is 30 per minute. Crackles are heard over the upper lung fields. The remainder of the findings on examination are unremarkable. Chest radiograph shows bilateral upper lobe cavitary lesions. Acid fast bacillus is found on direct sputum smear. Dead giveaway as a diagnosis, right? So this is a management question. Which of the following is the most appropriate therapy for this patient? Guys, better get this one right, or I'll find you. Um, A, ciprofloxacin, parazinamide, and ethambutol. B, isoniazid. C, isoniazid and rifampin. Or D, isoniazid, rifampin, parazinamide, and ethambutol. Or we could also say rifampin, isoniazid, parazinamide, and ethambutol, which stands for what? RIPE, R-I-P-E. <laughs> All right. So I have to I had to include that question because you really need to know that for all these tests. So this is just about managing initial therapy for active tuberculosis, which this patient has. He should be given a four-drug regimen as initial therapy for newly diagnosed, previously untreated tuberculosis. Diagnosis of pulmonary TB should be considered in any patient who has a cough longer than three weeks, accompanied by loss of appetite, unexplained weight loss, night sweats, bloody sputum or hemoptysis, hoarseness, fever, fatigue, or chest pain. Just about anything. <laughs> the index of suspicion should be substantially higher for patients who have increased risk of exposure to TB. Four drug therapies used in patients with suspected previously untreated TB in whom resistance patterns are unknown to allow coverage for possible multi-drug resistance, followed by de-escalation of antimicrobial therapy once drug susceptibility is known. Uh, RIPE, so that isoniazid, rifampin, parazinamide, and ethambutol are the most commonly used first-line drugs. All four drugs are used during the first two months of treatment, and depending on the results of susceptibility testing, treatment continues with isoniazid and rifampin for the remaining seven months for a total of nine months of treatment. Um, and I'm going to not really go over the rest of this uh, because uh, it's in the interest of time. But the key point here is that the initial therapeutic regimen for all adults with previously untreated tuberculosis consists of a two-month initial phase of treatment uh, with those four drugs pending the results of drug susceptibility tests and adjustment 
downward uh, depending on the susceptibility and so forth. And finally, uh, we're going to finish off here with item 19. This is a 35-year-old man who's seen for follow-up evaluation. He is scheduled to have dental work, including several extractions and placement of implants. Medical history is significant for a heart murmur, but is otherwise unremarkable. He takes no medications and has no known allergies. On physical examination, vital signs are normal. Heart examination shows a normal S1 and physiologically split S2. There's a grade 2 out of 6 mid-systolic murmur heard best at the second right intercostal space that radiates to the right carotid artery. Hmm. The remainder of the examination is normal. A previous transthoracic echocardiogram demonstrate, I feel like there should be a drum roll here, a bicuspid aortic valve with normal left ventricular function. Which of the following is the most appropriate antibiotic prophylaxis for this patient before his dental procedure? A. Amoxicillin orally. B. Trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole orally. C. Vancomycin intravenously. Or D. No antibiotic prophylaxis. So, the answer to this is D, no antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, no antibiotic prophylaxis is required prior to the patient's dental procedure. Although prophylaxis for dental procedures had been widely provided to individuals with most cardiac issues, it has been found that the bacteremia associated with dental procedures is much less likely to cause endocarditis than the bacteremia resulting from normal daily activities, such as brushing your teeth, and that only an extremely small number of cases of infective endocarditis are prevented by prophylaxis. Therefore, antibioprophylaxis is now recommended only for patients with underlying cardiac conditions associated with the higher risk of adverse outcome from infective endocarditis, and only when those patients undergoing specific procedures in which significant bacteremia is most likely. What are those things? Well, high-risk cardiac conditions include patients with prosthetic cardiac valves, a history of prior infective endocarditis, unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease, or completely repaired congenital heart disease for six months following that repair, repaired congenital heart disease with residual defects or abnormalities, and cardiac transplantation recipients with cardiac valvulopathy. Prophylaxis is not indicated in patients with heart murmurs associated with native valve abnormalities such as mitral valve prolapse or a congenital bicuspid aortic valve, as in this patient. In patients with an indication for treatment, antibiotics directed towards veritin streptococci are recommended, which is usually amoxicillin or clindamycin in penicillin uh, if the patient's allergic to penicillin. Uh, so, uh, the key point here is antibiotic prophylaxis to prevent infective endocarditis is recommended only for patients with underlying conditions associated with the highest risk of adverse outcome from infective endocarditis. This does not include heart murmurs associated with native valve abnormalities. This is a really important thing to know just in the practical day-to-day -day practice of medicine. So again, those situations are uh, patients with prosthetic heart valves, history of prior infective endocarditis, unrepaired cyanotic congenital heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, for the congenital heart disease, uh, or cardiac transplantation recipients with cardiac valvulopathy. 
So see item 19 for further details. Thanks everyone for being here for another five. It seems like we only did four, but I think we did five. It's been a long day. I've been at the hospital uh, and it's a little bit stressful with uh, COVID-19 issues. Uh, so I'm a little more distracted than usual here. So apologies for my lack of focus, but in any case, I'm sure you all understand. And I want to thank you and we'll look forward to seeing you, well, uh, sort of seeing you uh, at the next session. So I'm going to close out with some more. Um, what do you want? Chris Martin or Rafael Amenta? I'll surprise you. <laughs>